Welcome to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, the bite-sized TEFL podcast for teachers, trainers, and managers. Welcome back to the podcast. This week we've got a very, very, very special guest: the writer, linguist, and second language acquisition researcher. Professor Vivian Cook on the podcast, of whom I've got to say I'm a massive fan. So Professor Cook has worked in different areas such as bilingualism, EFL, first language acquisition, second language teaching, linguistics, and the English writing system. And we're really lucky to have him on the podcast and talking about his career in language learning. And just to explain, we recorded this podcast in a slightly unusual way. What we did was we emailed Professor Cook our questions. He wrote down his answers and recorded his answers, then sent them to us, and then we've added our questions. And then the final part now is、uh, in the podcast you'll hear us also discussing our sort of responses. Yeah. So in this episode, and we ask Vivian about his career and、uh, what has changed in language learning and language teaching. Since he started his career in 1960s, well, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and we'll also have a follow-up episode in which we do the same thing, but asking him about the past, present, and future of second language acquisition. So, hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Professor Cook. Welcome on. So, to start off with. Can you tell us how did you start your career in second language acquisition research and in language teaching? And what's motivated you to stay in this area throughout your long career? My first degree was in English literature and language. Then I got a scholarship for those who wanted to teach English in underdeveloped countries, where I thought English could be a valuable help. Unfortunately, I was advised not to work in tropical countries for health reasons. So I ended up teaching English as a foreign language in Ealing, in London, including writing EFL coursebooks. However, I convinced myself that any real progress in language teaching or coursebooks could only come if we understand better how students are actually learning in the classroom, and everything spun off from that. Over fifty years, I have drifted from course writing and language teaching to first language acquisition and Chomsky, to second language acquisition and applied linguistics, to second linguistics and call, to written language, to the language of street signs. Hardly a straightforward path with. Along the way, a beginner's EFL coursebook, a book on first language acquisition, a book on Chomsky, and a manual on the English writing system, among others. And which of your research discoveries, writings, or textbooks, or paper, etc., are you most proud of, and why? I always like the next book best, provisionally called *The Language of the Street*, and I'm too conscious of the faults I now see in the old ones. Even writing new editions doesn't help much. Say the five editions of my second language learning and language teaching. Nevertheless, I'm proud of the width of the coverage of this book and its straightforward style, and I think it has been appreciated by teachers. I'm still fairly pleased with the Cambridge Handbook of Linguistic Multicompetence, edited by Lee Wei and me in 2016. My insight that L2 users should be respected in their own right rather than seen as failed native speakers has been developed in such interesting ways, ranging from deaf sign languages to Navajo speakers to nicknames for Ernest Hemingway in Cuba. And I'm constantly amazed that the web page for my 1985 paper on universal grammar and SLA has around 600 visitors per week. Some 35 years later, I must have done something right. 
More recently, I hope that my little experiments jointly with my students have helped the increasing discovery that L2 users actually think differently from monolinguals, an interesting offshoot of the theory of linguistic relativity. So let's talk about that for a minute, because you, you mentioned something really interesting. I think that usually when we think about learning a second language and, and how we talk about interference between languages, we always assume that it's your first language interferes with your second language, right? That, for example, French people learning to speak English will speak English with a French accent. But what he mentioned there is this idea that, and I'll, I'll quote here from a, something he's written before in his uh, language learning and language teaching book. He says, quote, whereas the effects of the L1 on L2 interlanguage are easy to see, the effects of L2, so student's second language, on L1, their mother tongue, have been little discussed. Yet everyone who's been exposed to an L2 can tell anecdotes about the effect on the L1. Here's an example, I think, from another paper. So, for instance, Japanese people, uh, so in Japanese there's this word apparently bosu, like boss, and bosu means like gang leader. So for Japanese who speak English, the word bosu is related less to crime by Japanese who know the English word for boss than by Japanese people who don't know English. And there's many, many other examples. Do, do you have any examples of how you found that like English has maybe influenced your first language, Chinese? Yeah, definitely. I didn't um, realize that until a couple of colleagues actually told me after I wrote some messages in Chinese and told me like, wow, you probably follow the structure or the grammar rules in English. It's not just grammar as well. The same thing happens with pronunciation changes slightly. And there's even other ideas that like it changes the way that you just think about the world as well by speaking a second language. I think we'll talk about this more later, but a lot of uh, Vivian Cook's work has been on these ideas that someone who speaks a second language is not just a monolingual plus a second language. You're really a sort of a completely different type of speaker altogether and that your second language influences your first language and even influences the way you think. So he's got an example here. This is from a paper called Going Beyond the Native Speaker. And this is an, about an experiment where you get people from different cultures to look at a fish tank and afterwards you ask them what they remember. And he says, quote, Chinese people who speak English will remember the fish more than the plants to a greater extent than Chinese monolinguals. Different cultures think in different ways. Our cultural attitudes may also be changed by the language we are acquiring. In this case, Chinese attention to background. So the L2 ability actually helps students' views of the world. Mm, so we need to give a little background information. What does the fish mean here? So the fish in the fish tank, right? So if the Chinese person can speak English and they tend to pay attention to I think the fish, the fish more, more than, than the background of the tank. Whereas if you don't speak English, you would maybe pay more attention to the plants mm. in the tank. Different cultures pay different attention to either sort of like the foreground or the background of something. Mm. Do you think it's because, because people who can speak different languages and of course the brain, how it works and might change a little bit and affect our view, seeing things. Maybe. I've like also heard other things. And... Yeah, I've, I've also read other things about how languages that have a future tense tend to, I can't remember, save money or save more money or save less money for the future than languages that don't have a future tense. In other words, like the grammar of the language can change people's attitudes to saving money. But anyway, mm -hmm. I guess just the overall point here is, again, that by learning a second language, 
it's actually changing who you are. Wow. Okay. Cool. Okay. Do you want to read the next question? So, Professor Cook, which of your works, like books, research, and articles, etc., would you most like to go back and update for the twenty-first century? After three editions of my Chomsky book and five of my language learning one, I have recently tried not to recycle things I have written before, but to write something new. You tend to get in a rut if you are always tying yourself into your past. It's bad enough having to check your earlier writings for contradictions and self-plagiarism. The book I was disappointed by was a beginner's book, People and Places, where the publishers had the bright idea of getting me to write a skeleton that would be fleshed out by local writers in different countries to suit local teachers' examinations and situations. However, they found that overseas publishers wouldn't take this on without seeing a published course, and so they rushed out my skeleton as a book. But of course, it wasn't. I had supplied a bare outline of repetitious activities, etc., that needed lots added to it to be complete, and so the book flopped. Apart from in Poland, where it was massively used in secondary schools, but of course brought in an income in non-convertible slotties rather than the princely sum it would have yielded anywhere else. To what extent have coursebook writers and teacher trainers adopted your ideas and ideas from other SLA experts? My early EFL coursebooks did use some of these ideas. The grammatical progression of realistic English was based on Chomsky's then analysis of the verb phrase. Not that even my co-authors really recognised it. My series English for Life in part used Evelyn Hatch's ideas of conversational interaction. The last real impact from ideas about learning a language was really in the 1970s, with the communicative syllabus and communicative language teaching, mostly due to David Wilkins. Applications of SLA and linguistics ideas have either been at a very general, bland level of application. Teaching should be based on tasks, on input, etc., with which nobody could take exception, or so specific they apply to essentially a couple of lessons in total, say the forms of the past tense. Overall, rather little use has been made of SLA. A friend, for instance, tried to publish a course book based on Krashen's ideas, but what publishers wanted was another communicative, task-based course for CEFR levels A to C. Materials Association Matsta started, indeed, as a talking shop for course writers to discuss the issues they faced, mostly the publishers' dislike for anything new. So it's, it's quite interesting.、Um, do you think? Well, not only because of publishers, but Part of it is like、um, they would like to stick to popular or existing ideas rather than promoting new findings and new ideas. I think so. Well, I think that's what he said.、Mm. And my experience in doing a lot of interviews with experts on this podcast is that's really often the feedback that when you get into this question of why are more findings from research not applied in language teaching, people usually blame publishers basically for for not wanting to do anything different. So when we look back the last hundred years, and we say there are not a lot of changes in compared to other areas or industries. I think if you compare to, like you say, other industries, like if you compare technology now to in the nineteen seventies, the gap is absolutely vast. And but if you compare, well, I mean, we just asked him, right? And he said that really that the biggest change has happened in the seventies. I mean, that's that's like forty years ago, right? Yeah, I think that that's that really is problematic. Okay. Last question, and the last question is:、uh, What has been your experience as a language learner, and how is it similar or different to what you found in your SLA research? My own experience with other languages was rather unusual. 
I spent about a third of my life, from seven to eighteen, in sanatoria and kinderheims in the Swiss Alps, and so I could function adequately in Swiss German and French from talking to the other children. Then I came back to England to face a standard academic French course and Latin to get into university. I stopped using anything but English, and I am now completely tongue-tied in French. Though I have little problems with understanding conference papers in French, and I read Swiss newspapers in German online, mostly because they report skiing. I used to tell students I was effectively monolingual. Some of them were rather surprised when we went together to a restaurant at a conference in Nancy, and I automatically talked to the waiter in French. My most recent learning experience was on reciprocal summer courses for teachers of English and of French, which had the simple device of alternating language days, so that teachers and learners effectively swapped roles each day. This certainly activated my latent French. A recent using experience was on a university committee in Geneva, which employed the so-called Swiss model, in which everybody speaks their own language, but has to comprehend the other languages, i.e. French and Swiss German. I had no real problems, apart from language-related jokes. I recommend both these types of situation, but basing teaching on either of them would be rather difficult. So that last thing there, the Swiss model he mentioned, is I think at a conference that everyone speaks their own language, but everyone else has to understand what everyone else is saying. So this would kind of be like a, a conversation in which I speak English to you and you reply to me in Chinese. Shima. Sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had a friend at high school whose parents were German, and I remember him telling me his parents would speak to him in German, and him and his sister would reply in English. And at the time, I thought that was the weirdest thing. I was like, how can that make sense? And it's funny now at work that happens to、mm. me every single day. And I think that's probably quite normal for a lot of people. But again, I don't think it's something that you'd probably ever try doing in a language class. But I think it's a really interesting idea, isn't it, to get one person to speak one language and someone to reply in something else?、And、like I say, I think that's probably quite realistic and probably happens in quite a lot of places in the world. So once again, everyone, that was Professor Vivian Cook. If you're interested in finding out more, check out his website. It's www.viviancook.uk. And thanks very much for listening to this episode, and see you next time. Goodbye. For more podcasts, videos, and blogs, visit our website www.tefeltraininginstitute.com. If you've got a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a comment. And if you want to keep up to date with our latest content, add us on WeChat at Tefl Training Institute.、And、if you enjoy our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. <laughs>